Let's pray together. Father, make these moments matter. We, we come today and we are uh, hurried and uh, troubled people. And to hear from you by your word proclaimed is surely the medicine that our souls need. And so we ask for that grace. We ask, we ask for that kindness from you. We ask to, Father, that our the way we receive it would bring you pleasure. So do give us ears to hear. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. It's all for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me begin this morning um, with what I think is a very, very important question. Probably one of the great questions of our day. It's so important, in fact, I put it on a screen for you. Isn't that a great question? It's one of, the, one of my favorite questions. I don't know how you feel about it. And I realize some of you at, at first blush may be put off by a question that you think might be just a touch self-serving on my part. Um, but it might not be as bad as it seems. Let me show you why. Hebrews chapter 13, very interesting and much neglected verse in Scripture says this. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. Uh, there are many interesting and uh, terrifying things for both you and me in this verse. But at some level, the pleasure that your shepherds, your pastors, your elders, even your small group leaders get from caring for you, from watching over you, from shepherding you, um, is to your advantage. And in the opposite end, the frustration, the trouble, the um, pushback that they get from you is to your disadvantage. So maybe this question is not as wholly self-serving as it seems at first blush. Um, I feel sure of that because... The Apostle Paul himself legitimized this motivation at the back end of the book of Philippians, which is where we want to look today. In Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Now, just before we uh, dive into this last section and begin to think about this 
question of motivation together. Um, to understand what's going on in this church and their relationship to the Apostle Paul is really helpful when you read the book of Philippians. Um, just a, a couple of things that are real important is that Paul really, in a sense, planted this church. One of the few that he planted, but he did plant this one. And um, in a sense, he writes almost as their founding pastor. And there is a deep, warm affection between Paul and the church at Philippi. You read the letter and it's just full of those kinds of um, emotions and teachings and ramifications in their relationship. One commentator suggested that if Paul had a favorite church, this was probably it. There's a deep, deep bond and love between Paul and and these people. The other thing that I want you to bear in mind this morning is Paul's writing this letter to a church that he dearly loves. And it's important for us to realize Paul is writing from prison. Or at least some form of incarceration. As he writes the letter and the, the closing section to that letter that we're about to look at. So Paul, from prison, writes these words in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. That kind of prompts the question that I opened our time together with this morning. Um, what made Paul, their pastor, their imprisoned pastor, so wildly happy? What made him not just rejoice, but rejoice greatly? And the answer is in the second part of that same verse. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So what made Paul so happy was the renewal of their concern for him as their imprisoned pastor. And if you were to read the broader story of uh, their relationship... Throughout the book of Philippians, you begin to pick up on some things that their concern took a particular shape. The way that they showed their care for Paul uh, was a gift that was brought by a man named Epaphroditus from their church to Paul. He bore an expression of their care and concern for him while he was in prison. Turns out there were multiple gifts that had been given to Paul from this church. But that seems to be the one that's most foremost. So... Back to our first question, what will make your pastor happy? Gifts. Okay. It's right there in the Bible. More specifically, gifts, especially when he's in jail. Okay, so should that situation arise, I think probably there are better takeaways for us here than that, but it's worth keeping in mind. So in the next couple of verses... This takes a really unexpected twist. Okay? Uh, look at verse 11. Paul writes, from prison, I am not saying this just because I'm in need. I'm not saying this because I am in need. And so here Paul is beginning to turn the focus of the exchange of the gift here from him as the receiver to them as the givers. It's turning. 
And in some absolutely amazing way, it's not about Paul. It's about them. He is not rejoicing simply or even principally because his need was met. He is rejoicing, as we'll see explicitly in just a couple verses. He's rejoicing because they gave so beautifully. That's that's what made this pastor happy. Um, And this raises another question for us. It's a bit of an aside from our main question, but it's central to what's going on all the same. How does he do that? How does a man imprisoned get a gift? And okay, this is not like soap on a rope or a new tie. We can assume safely that a gift that comes to a man incarcerated in some kind of Roman prison is probably a life-saving gift. Maybe it's clothes. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's medicine. But let's assume that it matters a lot. How does a man get a life-saving gift like that and be more excited about the blessing that's coming to the giver than that he gets it himself. Now, I'll, I'll show you where I'm at with this. I'm, I get this at Christmas, okay? Uh, when my kids were younger and the dollar store gifts would come to me, okay, I could say that I was genuinely at a level in my understanding of giving and receiving that I was more excited that my kids were learning to give than the dollar store screwdriver, the umpteenth dollar store screwdriver that I got. But if I was in prison, and they sent me clothes I did not have, or food I did not have, or something that may very well have saved my life, I'm not sure I would still be able to feel that way. How, when you are suffering a great hardship, do you manage to care more about someone else? How do you care more that they are giving than that you are getting? He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, he writes from prison. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living, living in plenty or living in want. In a word, Paul says that it's because he has learned to be content in whatever circumstances. And I think Paul means that literally. In need or in plenty... He has learned to be content. And if you look at some of Paul's other writings, we, there's no doubt he really knew what it meant to be in need. This is not some allusion to something he hadn't experienced. Listen to this, this one description of his life and ministry from his own hand in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. There's more. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Without question, Paul has credibility when he writes about what it means to be content in great need. And now he says, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. He says, you see, I'm free to care more about you than me. Even when my needs are their greatest, even on my worst day, you matter more than me because I've learned the secret of being content. And it's interesting here that Paul doesn't either disparage or elevate either one of these situations. He doesn't say, uh, it's terrible to be in need, you should never be in need. He doesn't say, it's, it's uh, wonderful to be uh, wealthy or terrible to be wealthy. He doesn't say anything about all he says about these widely disparate life circumstances. Is that in either one of those settings, you need to learn to be content. That the secret to following Christ in those scenarios, both of them, in times of prosperity and in times of lack, is being content. Both the secret is being content. And that's why Paul elsewhere elsewhere would write these words to the wealthy. These are written to the wealthy in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Contentment. There's a recent survey done by a management consultant company that surveyed a thousand full-time U.S. female workers uh, aged 22 to 35. And... When they asked them what sacrifices they would make concerning their personal and professional lives, over half of the women said they were ready and willing to give up personal time to make more money. Now, whatever this says about us, about wage equity, about women in the workforce, whatever it says about all those things, it surely does not speak to us of our contentment as a culture. Bank of America, just a year or so ago, asked a thousand adults what they would do if they were given a thousand dollars. The answers are interesting because it's, it's a survey done by a bank. 48% said they would put it all in a general savings account. 27% said they would use it to pay off credit card debt. 12% said they'd put it in their children's educational fund. 10% they'd use it for health care expenses. 10% said they would put it toward a vacation. But at best I can tell... The one response that didn't even register was giving it away. And again, whatever this says about us, about saving, about paying off debt as priorities, whatever it says about those kind of things, it surely does not speak 
of our contentment. The United States now has 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space. 2.3 billion square feet. What, what that translates to is that it is now physically possible that every American could stand all at the same time under the total canopy of self-storage roofing. We could all fit in self-storage space. And whatever this says about us, about, about our being transient or about foreclosures, whatever it says, it surely does not speak of our contentment, does it? We are an uncontented, a discontented lot. Paul says that this great counterculture virtue called contentment is the key, it's the secret to being free in every circumstance, in in abundance or need, in good times or bad, to care more about others than our own selves, even when our needs are great. Even, even, he says, when we're in prison. So contentment is the secret. Just pushes the ball back one more space. So what's the secret to the secret? How, how do we become content? And it's in that context. It's very important to think about everything that Paul's been saying. It's in that context that he says this amazing thing in verse 13. He says, I can do everything through him Who gives me strength. I can do everything. Through him who gives me strength. The secret to being content. He says. Is is strength drawn from another source. From Christ himself. It's good though. To pause for a minute. And think about what this verse does not mean. Because it's a verse that's often talked about, not in the context of the conversation that Paul's having with the Philippians and that we're having this morning. For instance, you can find this verse, I am told, I'm not a fan, um, embroidered on MMA boxer shorts, mixed martial art boxer shorts, as though having Philippians 4.13 is going to help you win your bout when they put you in the cage. Because you can do everything. Not, not exactly what Paul had in mind, I don't think. It does not mean that you can be assured of massive financial gain and live in a palatial home happily ever after. This is not, verse 13 is not some spiritual lucky rabbit's foot that you rub and good stuff sticks to you. Paul is saying... That in knowing and loving Christ lies the ability, the secret to be content in any circumstance. Palace or prison, that's the secret. It does mean that you can live a God-honoring life full of hope 
and joy and love, whether you are a slave or you are free, whether you are rich or you are poor, whether you are well-fed or experiencing real hunger, whether you are unemployed or whether you are in foreclosure, whether you are married or you are alone, if you draw near to Christ in such a way that He is your treasure, as Stuart talked to us the last couple weeks, that you draw strength from Him and don't trust in your own resources. Paul is saying, then you can be content. Then you can be free so you don't grasp for your own needs all the time, but you are free to put other needs above your own. A radical communion with and dependence upon Jesus provides you the strength you need to be content and to care for others' needs above your own in whatever circumstance you find yourself. Whatever circumstance you find yourself. He continues on, verse 14. He says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. He's thinking back about that gift they sent. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Isn't that interesting? Not one church would share in Paul's ministry except this one special church. Of all the churches that he planted, all the people that he served, only one church shared with him. He said, even when I was in Thessalonica, bigger city, bigger church, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. He really does appreciate their gift. He's not some kind of super stoic guy who it just you know, doesn't even matter to him that he got this. It matters a great deal to Paul that he got their gift. Um, and that that had been their history together. Soon as this church was founded, they were generous to Paul. It says again and again, when nobody else would help, you guys helped. And it's interesting This was not a wealthy church. That's an understatement. This was a poverty-stricken church. If you remember uh, a a passage that uh, we've cited before, uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's writing about Macedonian churches. Philippi is in Macedonia. This is one of the churches, Macedonian churches. He says, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, including Philippi. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. They were generous from the start and they were dirt poor. Probably literally. And that... That's their DNA. That's just who they were from the start. Uh, l- last Sunday, I was not here. I was in Tampa at our, our uh, brand new church plant down there, Covenant Life uh, Church Tampa, affectionately known as North Wake South. I thought it was a way better name. but um, Got to visit with them. There's Drew and, and uh, Jesse, one of, one of the pastors in Wife in their new space. They have brand new worship space. I told them, I said, guys, you have better space than we had until five years ago when we built this building. 
First Baptist Tampa has given them their chapel to use on Sunday mornings. This church is talking about generous. This old inner city church is giving them space. It says, use our chapel. Seats about 125. Because they come from North Wake, it'll probably fit about 250. Um, he said, here are restrooms that only you guys will use. Here's children's space, fully furnished. You guys use it. Because we don't have very many kids. It's just incredible. And they are literally across the street from the University of Tampa. I mean, you walk off UT's campus and you're at their church. Here's why that matters. There are 7,000 students at the University of Tampa. And um, I think Justin may have, Justin Perry, the other pastor down there, is having conversation with their faith and values office uh, on the campus. Private school, but not a Christian school. They said, uh, 7,000 students. How many practicing Christians on this campus? She said, probably 60. 60 of 7,000. And they walk across the street, and here's this uh, generous new church plant sharing the gospel with them. And, and, and guess what these guys are doing this week? Um, giving away Thanksgiving meals to families uh, that they hooked up with through a middle school that they serve on a regular basis. It's just beautiful. I think they're doing like 19 families or something. It's crazy. They barely have 19 people in their church and they're giving away almost that many meals. They had like 50 at their service last week, which was like high attendance Sunday for a new church plan. It is in their DNA to be generous. And I think the reason for that is it's kind of a like mother, like daughter thing. Because this week, 70 families from North Wake are taking Thanksgiving meals to people in need in our community. 70 of you. Taking gospel-laced meals to 70 homes in our community. And this is typical of you guys. You do this all the time. Um, what I think everybody's favorite part of our capital campaign is that we give away 10% of the money that comes in. And this, I gather from people I talk with, is not common. Um, but people, our congregation loves this. It's their favorite part of giving to our capital campaigns to see where the money's going to go. Um, for instance, this year, one of the places we're giving money is where my um, daughter, Corey, is right now. Um, she is in the capital city of Ethiopia in Addis Ababa, a city renowned for its street kids. Uh, some estimates say up to 150,000 street kids. There's a little Ethiopian-led ministry there called the Onesimus Child Development Association, a profoundly Christian and beautiful expression of the love of Christ towards these kids. They have 150 kids they serve every day, uh, just bringing them in and loving on them and telling them the stories of Christ and helping them learn about personal hygiene and safety and uh, a bunch of different things like that. Um, mostly, though, just giving them a place where they can be loved because these kids are loose on the street. And uh, we are going to 
along with some other individuals and people, make sure that every one of those 150 kids has a new set of clothes um, before Christmas hits and uh, before Corey leaves to come back. By the way, Corey's the one in the middle. <laughs> pick her out there. And you probably can't see it. Maybe you can a little bit. These kids, they're scarred up. Physically, scarred up. Life on the streets. Not pretty in Addis Ababa. And so we're going to make sure they all get, as an expression of the love of Christ, clothes. And we're going to give enough money um, in partnering with these other things that we're going to be able to help some families who are beggars um, leave a life of begging and start legitimate businesses so they can set their families free from this cycle. So there'll be um, starting shoe shining businesses and bread making businesses um, because of your generosity. Um, of course, uh, next year, I think Stu told you this last week, we're going to give the money to go down to these kids at an orphanage in Wanamith, Haiti, where Rob and the Joyner brothers just got back from. If the trend holds true next year, we'll be able to apply uh, t- over $20,000 because of this uh, kind of tie thing we do with our building campaign uh, to ministering to these kids in direct aid and in travel for our people to get down there and serve. It's going to be beautiful. Um, and I, I could spend the rest of my time telling stories of the generosity that flows out of this collection of people. Um, When I think about your generosity and I reflect on the different churches of the New Testament, you remind me most of this church at Philippi. And like their pastor, I am flooded with memories of gratitude for what God is doing, not only through you, but in you. In you. Paul says in verse 17, not that I'm looking for a gift. This means it's not about me. But I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Paul says that is why I am so excited. That's why I'm so happy. Not because I get a great gift, but because you are learning to be generous. Paul says, that makes me wildly happy. He really believes that what Jesus said was true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's happy about the gift, for sure. But he greatly rejoices that they have given it. And what that means for them. There truly is 
a great blessing for them amidst their generosity. And so today, at the close of our service, we're going to collect our Journey of Faith pledges, that is, capital campaign pledges for the next year to pay off our mortgage on this building so we can be wildly generous beyond the 10% of that money we give now. All 100% of it can go. So at one level, um, I'm eager to pay that down. But at another level, I rejoice greatly just that you're giving it. I love what God is doing in your hearts, that they are, by this act of generosity today and so many others, you're being safeguarded from the stuffed, crazed world that we live in. Now, amidst all that encouragement, let me sound a note of concern as your pastor. Last year, barely half of us participated in, in what is really a great need of our church. Barely half of our congregation participated. Um, and obviously, that's a concern of mine. Not only, honestly, because half of us cannot bear this burden alone. We cannot do this alone. North Wake is not a church of many deep pockets. I'm still searching for the first deep pocket. Okay. We, we don't have those kind of folk here. It's just not who we are. Our, our giving in this matter is simply a matter of a great pile of small gifts. Now, if you have deep pockets, we would love for you to be an exception, a, a trend breaker... But folks, honestly, your gift matters because, because we don't have a lot. We're just average folks with average incomes. But I pray we'd be with big hearts. You know, it's interesting to me that um, when Paul was in Corinth, his boast was, I didn't take any money from this church. I worked on the side. But with, in Philippi, he said, thanks for the money. I'm glad for it. Thanks for your gifts. Thanks for taking care of me again and again and meeting my needs. What's the difference between Corinth and Philippi? I, I'm not entirely sure, but I bet, one, he couldn't stop the people in Philippi from giving. I think they would have hid it under his cot in the prison and walked out if they had to, but I don't think he could have stopped them from the way 2 Corinthians 8 reads. And secondly, I wondered if he wasn't thinking that their hearts, as those poor and on the receiving end of so much of necessity, needed to learn to be generous and give. So I am greatly concerned that you don't miss this opportunity today, that you don't miss the absolute joy of being generous. He, he goes on and says in verse 18, words that I think they must have loved. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. I think they loved hearing that. Their, their pastor, their missionary, their apostle had his needs met because of their generosity. But it gets even better. In the second half of the verse, Paul says, 
These gifts, they're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So ultimately, the question is really not about making your pastor happy. It's about making God happy. What pleases God? And it's evident here that even in times of great need, others-centered generosity thrills God. And then Paul gives them this encouragement. And again, this is another one of these amazing verses we need to think about in light of what we've just heard. He says, My God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul draws his remarks to them to a close with this word of assurance. As we give, we can give gladly because God will take care of us. God will meet our needs. It does not mean that all our wants are met. And in some ways, this is very similar to the thrust of verse 13, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can give generously, saying, because we can trust our needs to God. We don't have to hold back. You know, uh, years ago, I bet this has been 15 years ago, we were fairly new in our neighborhood, and um, our neighborhood is not real stable. Okay, people come and go, and they and it, we're kind of at the, the bottom end of our social stratum, so you, some people get in, can barely hang in there, and then they, then they, they leave. And um, One of the guys in the neighborhood, before it was so common to lose your job, had lost his job and was about to lose his house, like I said, it's 10, 15 years ago. And a, and a neighbor uh, from down in that part of the neighborhood, this was the other end of the neighborhood from us, came to us and said, hey, uh, Bob has lost his job, and we're collecting some money to m- buy him some groceries and stuff. And uh, the thing that I remember, I can't remember everything, but the thing that I remember is that we didn't help. And I hate it. I regret it to this day. I don't know if we got busy or if we weren't sure if it was a good situation, if we were really helping by giving the guy money or, or if things were tight and we were afraid. But I hate it and I regret it. And I wish I had understood more clearly that I am free to be generous even when my needs are great because my God will will meet all my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus which is a pretty deep pool. A pretty solid trust. Glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So I share that story because I don't want you to look back on what we're doing as a church to meet a very 
big and legitimate need that we have with regret. And think that I wasn't a part because something lodged in my heart or I just got too busy and forgot or whatever it was. I don't want you to look back with regret. I want to be able to rejoice as your pastor at your generosity. And all of this talk of the wondrous contentment fueling care of God in his own life, Paul says, and the life of others drives Paul to close with this little statement. He says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It just makes him want to worship. And so we're going to close our time together with worship. Um, part of that worship, a, a significant expression of your worship of God is your uh, generous participation in this journey, what we call the journey of faith. It's our capital campaign. Um, I'll give you some directions about that in just a moment, but um, we want to take some time and give you a chance to ready your heart to do that. I'll pray for you, and then I'll give you some instructions, and the worship team's going to come and lead us in this time of worship. So let's bow and pray, and then I'll, I'll try to cue you in some logistics. Father, I'm, I'm uh, honestly um, ashamed of my example so long ago. And I thank you for your kindness that has brought it to mind so long forgotten and allowed me to repent of it I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters, and that you would protect them from the same folly. From a life too busy or a heart too jaded to be generous, too fearful maybe to, to be generous. Um, and God, our need is great. Uh, we, we have an obligation that we want to pay off in grand, God-glorifying fashion, to honor the wisdom of your word and pay off this debt quickly. And yet, Lord, we are giving to the kids of Addis and the kids in Haiti as earnest money, pledging to you that when we are free of this, we will continue to be generous to things nearer and dearer to your heart. And so, God, I pray now as uh, you are prompting and guiding us and helping us think about what we should give and helping us worship you in our gifts, um, that, that it would be in response to your spirit and your word and not any cajoling or manipulating by any other person, including me, especially me. that this would be worship pure and acceptable. As Paul said, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to you. And we offer this in the name of Christ. Amen.
Well, our worship team is going to come and lead us in a time of reflection. When you came in today, you should have received a, a pledge card. It's pretty self-explanatory. It just says, next year I intend, as God provides, to sacrificially give this much to help our church be debt-free. And we'll move towards that goal. These pledges start next January. They're calendar year uh, commitments that we make. Let me encourage you with something. Our leaders, as Stu mentioned last week, have already met. About 43 families and singles have met and given kind of lead gifts to kind of set a standard. And um, 43 families have given already $73,000 towards next year's debt reduction. Um, that's just, that's 15% of our families and singles. 15%. This could be a great year where we really move the ball forward in this and really back up the amount of time it'll take to be debt free. So what I'd like you to do, if you'll fill out your commitment cards and then during our time of worship, just come up here and place them on the communion table. If you're a leader that's already filled it out, what I'd like you to think about doing is just coming up on the steps alongside some of the others who are praying and giving their gifts and just pray for our church. You've already given your commitment, just come and pray. Pray for our church, for glad and generous hearts that this offering would be acceptable and fragrant and pleasing to God. So some of you are here this morning and you don't, you don't have a job, so you can't make a commitment, and we understand that. Just write on your card, I'm in. As God provides, I'm in. We want to know you're with us. And as God provides next year and you're able, join us. Okay. But most of us, God has blessed with uh, work and income and I pray that you will earnestly seek him in these moments, if you have not already, and uh, come and make your commitment here as an act of worship. If you're not readied or you feel uncomfortable with that, you can leave it in the prayer request box at the information table on your way out as well. Um, but let's worship. Let's stand. Let's worship our King who is worthy.